more and more shoppers are interested in buying local. And you might be surprised to learn that 80% of cut flowers that you buy at the florist or the market are imported. But that number is diminishing as more farmers are growing cut flowers. My guest today is Deborah Prinzing, the author of a new book, The 50 Mile Bouquet, Seasonal, Local, and Sustainable Flowers. And she hopes that the book will inspire and motivate floral enthusiasts to consider the source when they enjoy flowers in their lives. And uh, more and more gardeners are, are asking to buy local, and more and more farmers are growing flowers for the cut flower market uh, and for farmers markets all over the country. And I think that's something we should encourage, and Deborah's going to tell us all about it. Deborah Prinzing is a Seattle and Los Angeles-based outdoor living expert who writes and lectures on gardens and home design. Her five books include Garden Writers Association Gold Award-winning Stylish Sheds and Elegant Hideaways, and uh, Deborah serves as president of the Garden Writers Association and was a co-founder of GreatGardenSpeakers.com, and you can learn more about Deborah at DebraPrinzing.com, and we'll have a link on the radio website. And uh, I'm so happy to welcome Deborah Prinzing to Kendrew's Real Dirt. Good morning. How are you, Ken? I'm fine, and I really am happy to welcome you. And thank you for getting up so early. <laughs> I wish I could bring you a bouquet. That would make it all complete, but you'll have to take a virtual one. Well, in a way, you have brought me a bouquet, and it's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I, your book, it, your little book, is so beautiful that I, I think that if people don't buy a bouquet of locally grown flowers, giving your book would be a really nice thing to do. Thanks. We're hoping a lot of mothers get it for Mother's Day next Sunday. That would be great because <laughs> it, it really, it's just beautiful. It's, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. We have to, I have to give credit to David Perry, the my collaborator on this book, who's just an awesome photographer, and he did deserve a book about four times this size. But, um, you know, it's it's a an effort we cared passionately about, and it took about four years to get it published. So mm. we are just pleased to see it out into the um, universe for people to read and understand what we're interested in. Right, and I didn't say the book is The 50 Mile Bouquet, Seasonal, Local, and Sustainable Flowers. And uh, that's an important thing for people to know, <laughs> the name of the book. And it's very reasonably pr priced, and it's just, it's I shouldn't say precious, but it is precious. And uh, David's photographs are just beautiful. And it's stories of people, people who grow flowers for flower markets, who sell flowers, and just as the title says, often locally, within 50 miles. I think most people don't realize or know or even think about where their flowers come from, the flowers that they buy. It's true. And, you know, we've been so obsessed with the, the idea of the food mile and how far our food travels from where it's harvested or produced to our table. Um, that's been going on since, you know, Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse 40 years ago. Mm. And I think that it, it over time we lost any connection with flowers in our lives. And what we're trying to recapture uh, is an awareness that something's very similar, uh, similar to the culinary world is happening in the floral world. Um, what shocked David and me is that 80% of cut flowers sold in the U.S. are imported. And that's a whole separate conversation about U.S. trade policy and all of that, which is, you know, we don't have time for. But suffice it to say, for the last two decades, 
that number has been creeping up, and the American flower farmer has um, kind of become invisible. Mm. So we're trying to put a face back on the those hardworking folks who I'm sure you know people in your community who are you know selling at the farmers market or you know raising flowers for cut and you know selling to florists. Well, the farmers market, that whole movement has exploded, and every farmers market you go to, you see beautiful, really beautiful cut flowers, and they're not like the roses that you get that don't smell. Uh, those long stem almost plastic roses that do last a long time and they have to last a long time because they often come from Central America and they've been wrapped up and the, it may take weeks before you even get them and they don't look yeah, so there's good. Sort of a, <laughs> there's sort of a, um, well, it's similar to what happens with produce in that a per, certain varieties have to be bred for long shelf life or shipability. I call those roses from uh, Central America softballs on sticks. Mm -hmm. They're just so rigid and steroidally large. And um, uh, boy, I was so excited when we reconnected with a family, a third generation family of, of cut rose growers in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is outside of Portland, called Peter Court. And uh, they grow... We call them the last rose farmer in Oregon. They probably are for the commercial cut flower trade, and they grow hybrid teas um, that are beautiful and delicate and uh, sort of perfect for bridal bouquets, perfect for that personal um, arrangement, not something you'd send in a box with, you know, 12 lined up, you know, rigid stems. Um, and they're having a really cool resurgence because the designers um, are recognizing that their customers want to know where flowers are coming from. And then the designers can tell the story, oh, these roses were grown by people I know. And they use sustainable practices. And, um, you know, there's a romance to that. Well, and the, uh, the arrangements that you can make with them are also incredibly romantic. They have a, I guess it's sort of a country feel and it's it's as if you grew them yourself. You know, if you had your dream cut flower garden, which a lot of people would love to have, but that's really almost a farm <laughs> to supply <laughs> really? even a house. <laughs> well, but, to get through all the seasons, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and most of the people who grow the flowers in your book do grow the kind of old-fashioned, wonderful things like snapdragons and sunflowers and things like that. But there's also some people who are doing some crazy things. <laughs> well, and, you know, I think what's happening is this sort of um, the power that the local flower farmer is starting to realize that they have as a, a to create a, something that has value added, a design element that the high-end, you know, couture floral industry, uh, floral design industry is looking for. It's really giving them an edge. And the smartest ones are saying, look, I'm going to grow crops that can't be shipped. So I can't, wor I, will I won't have to worry about some, you know, uh, corporate farm in South America kind of undercutting my price because, you know, of lower labor costs or because the environmental regulations aren't as, as restrictive as the U.S. ones. And so, you know, people who are growing things like uh, fruiting raspberry vines or um, anything. Artichokes. Any, yeah, artichokes and anything with fruit on it. Oh, there's a whole, there's that whole um, kind of branches of, I don't know, anything from uh, little crab apples or Meyer lemons, you know, just anything that can be a really evocative ingredient in the vase 
you clearly came from the orchard down the street and mm-hmm. not wasn't shipped uh, gives these uh, some of the flower farmers a real edge. You know, the the hottest foliage uh, ingredient that hit Seattle this month at the market. We have a market that where our farmers sell direct to the floral trade. It's a wholesale market. Mm-hmm. It's a cooperative. Uh, is anthriscus foliage, and uh, it's the chocolatey brown um, leaf of uh, the cultivar is called Raven's Wing. Yeah. You grow that? It's I do grow like that. I've, I've never tried to cut it, except I actually I deadhead it because because <laughs> it's a little vigorous if you let it go well, to seed. It is a thug in the garden, and so clearly the the farmers who are growing it are harvesting all the foliage and keeping it in check. But it's it's you know we want we want contrast and texture and um, sort of something unexpected, and I think that's what we discovered in creating this book is that. The people who are really coming at flower farming with a sensibility or an understanding of what the designer needs, they've got an edge. Well, you, you know, you're talking about Anthriscus raven's wing, which has very fern. It's almost like a carrot. If you've ever seen carrot foliage, it's it's yes. very ferny and it's a beautiful dark purple foliage color. And if you cut it, it wilts almost instantly. And there is a section in the back of your book on dealing with cut flowers, your own cut flowers. But but it takes a lot of expertise to get a plant like that not to wilt. And the conditioning, which is what we call right. that preparation of mm-hmm. flowers, maybe people think, especially because it's 50 miles, maybe they think they cut the flowers and bring them to the market. But all those flowers really have to be treated they have to be dealt with and i don't mean with chemicals or anything like that but mostly it's plunging their long stems in water for 24 hours or for eight hours yeah i mean it's definitely different than what the home gardener would do um and i think that home gardeners um we're experimental you know we are willing to try anything in a vase and see how it does i mean listen my biggest disappointment when i realized that japanese anemone is not a happy camper in a vase because I think that you know in late summer early fall that's that's like the only thing that's happening in my garden and I would love to bring it in and it's just a horrible cut flower so you know the farmers are experimenting the way that we are and there's there's a real community of sharing too there's actually um, a group called the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Farmers it's a trade group just like the Garden Writers Association and they um, are in all 50 states Um, they have interesting bulletin board conversations and I I lurk on the edge of those seeing what people are talking about in terms of oh those latest one is succession planting of gladiolas and how do you you know how do you do that but you know stuff that as a gardener I'm also interested in I'm not growing for commercial trade Um, but the, the, the care that the farmers take to harvest at the right time, which is usually very early in the morning, and then to immediately process those flowers in, um, you know, by stripping foliage, at any foliage that's going to be under the level of water, they strip that off. They often bunch things in groups of, you know, seven to ten stems, and then, you know, plunge them into, you know, sometimes the water has a, a preserving solution. Uh, sometimes it's just the temperature that they're concerned about. Um, and then many of them have rigged up these little um, walk-in coolers in their in their sheds and barns that, um, you know, keep hold things at a cooler temperature. All of those things the home gardener is not necessarily going to be able to do. 
what I find is that when you talk to the farmer, you ask them, you know, how they, what were their growing practices, um, you know, what sustainable practices they do. It's really a wonderful conversation because they, you know, they know that you as a consumer care and they will continue to seek greener practices. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, it's very hard, as in food, it's very hard to get certified organic uh, as a commercial flower farmer. And so many of these farmers just use completely, you know, green, eco-friendly practices. They just, you know, like, like cover crops and crop rotation and beneficial insects and, right, you know, recirculating the, or reclaiming and reusing the water that they use to irrigate, but they just, you know, don't have that organic label. But more and more will, I think. And, you know, you have a picture in your book of uh, someone's shop in the, uh, the, I don't remember the name of the shop, but it says organic. It's right mm -hmm. on the window. And mm -hmm. I'm, I was drawn to that. I think in, in a place like New York City, a florist that puts the word organic on the window would be successful. It's just like uh, what we're calling conspicuous conservation. You know, the, mm. the, the, oh, Prius, like <laughs> the Prius buyers, <laughs> they're yeah, going to go well, out of their you know, way. Yeah. And the shop that you're mentioning is called Lily Lodge. It's in West Hollywood. Um, it's certainly the most luxe, uh, you know, eco-florist that we profiled. But Ariana um, uh, Smeraldo really became conscious of using organically grown flowers when she was pregnant. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I started to realize that I'm handling flowers every day. I'm starting this business. She had come from the fashion industry. She's like, you know, I don't want to expose myself or my clients to uh, fumigants and herbicides and pesticides and so she's been a really uh, insistent uh, florist forcing her floral suppliers to um, prove you know that what their practices are so then she it's a storytelling thing too can you mm -hmm. she can turn around and, and educate her consumers um, or her, her buyers about why they should care um, and I think that was the biggest sticking point when David and I first started shopping the book around is we had publishers say, well, you don't eat flowers, so why should why should it matter how they were grown? Um, <laughs> so maybe you won't get skin rashes and things like that. Right. And, you know, the other thing is uh, many people, I, I, I don't, I'm not one of them, but many people believe that flowers are a luxury good, a luxury item. And so um, if that's the case, all the more reason we should not be damaging the earth to enjoy them in our homes. Um, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a consciousness uh, about how we live our lives. And we, we do look at labels when we buy uh, produce uh, or when we go to the market and, and um, shop, you know, directly from the farmer. We, we won't be, have those little decisions we make day in and day out about everything we consume. And uh, flowers should just be right in there with that conversation. Right, and and try not to buy fruit and vegetables from Chile if you can help it, because even if even if they are allegedly organic, they still have been shipped for such a great distance. And who knows what the practices are and how the people who are growing them are treated. I don't even want to think about yeah. that or get into it. Yeah. But in the 50-mile bouquet, seasonal, local, and sustainable flowers, you were talking about the woman in uh, L.A., I guess, just a moment ago. And mm -hmm. you have 
stories. That's what the book really is. It's stories of the of these people who are trying very hard to stay in the market, and I think they're going to succeed. This is definitely you're again. You have hit on something that's going to become more and more popular. And I was. Uh, you also talked about the three generations in Oregon, and I was so interested at the four top states that produce cut flowers. And Oregon is number four, uh, with ten million dollars in cut flowers. California, as we might guess, is number one, the top producing cut flower state. Washington state is the next one. And little New Jersey is number three. <laughs> I knew that you I knew you would notice that figure. And um, I really don't have a complete answer as to why. What is, do you have a sense as to why the uh, numbers coming out of just those greenhouses in New Jersey are so high? Well, I could could guess, and what I would guess is at one time they fed the New York City market, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was nearby. In those days, people couldn't ship things that far, and uh, a lot of the, it's really a shame because a lot of the greenhouses are closing, and the main reason is heating, you know, it's just so expensive to to heat these greenhouses. But uh, cut flower production in New Jersey... I was thrilled to see that uh, New Jersey was number three, but I wasn't that surprised because in the, where I am in the northwest corner of New Jersey, there, there's a lot of greenhouses and also a lot of fields. And also in, in New York State, in the southern part of New York State, when I go to, to the um, farmer's markets, the cut flowers are unbelievable. And then also there's the New York City markets too, which there are many. Absolutely. And yeah. the cut flowers are fantastic. Well, and that kind of points to the fact that uh, the pockets of uh, that that we, you know, that we discovered the pockets of success tend to be within a 100-mile radius of a major metropolitan market where there's a critical mass of consumers who care about this sort of thing and who want to um, want to have a more unique ingredients or who have um, sort of a more of a design-oriented focus or or just want to want to buy local. Um, so New York, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, um, ironically, you know, the, the um, Milwaukee, um, Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, that whole hub is really mm-hmm. big. Mm-hmm. Um, Denver, we, we profiled a, a grower in Boulder who serves all the Whole Foods stores in the whole oh, that's mountain great. region. And it was so great to get someone on the, you know, in an interview from Whole Foods, like the produce floral manager, talking about why, you know, what local means to Whole Foods and why they support local flower farmers. I mean, you have to, you have to be able to tell your story. These flower farmers are thrilled that we have captured their story in a book because they're taking it with them to meetings at grocery stores and supermarkets and saying, this is why your customers want to know who we are. So it's really fun to see that connection and those those conversations taking place. And uh, if we have a little part in it, we're thrilled because we, you know, there's nothing worse than walking into a supermarket and seeing that lifeless cellophane wrap. Ooh, you know, <laughs> or car- carnations, for example, <laughs> or something like that. And yeah. people still buy them. But you were mentioning uh, the design interest in the major cities, and mm-hmm. I remember, and I'm sure you do too. In the 1980s, everything was tropical. People wanted tropical mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. very, you know, funny designs and abstract and and gigantic uh, birds of paradise and gingers and things like that. But I I see the trend being one about nostalgia and that people right. really want 
And you you mentioned gladiolas. You know, there was for years no one wanted to see a gladiola. It was just like that's for grandmothers and funerals. Mm-hmm. Maybe well, it's because we are grandmothers. And I think that the varieties <laughs> that are being grown are probably the 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 smaller kind of right, uh, right, softer, not those big, you know, tall spikes. But and you know the other thing about um, you're mentioning the tropicals and perhaps why they went out of favor is I think that goes back to the seasonality. Um, and I know you've you know, you get this because you are just, you know, you're in this world. You know when a, a beautiful ornamental shrub is going to be at its peak and when it's going to have the most beautiful flowers on it or when, uh, you know, some kind of pod is, you know, forming on the branch. And then that's like crocosmia, for example. I love crocosmia after all the um, petals have fallen off. And there are several of these growers in my area are growing crocosmia for the seed heads on the stem at the end of the season because oh, that's, that's a really architectural element. Um, so similarly to food and knowing that we love that heirloom tomato right off the vine and we pop it in our mouths straight from the garden and it just tastes like summer um, versus, you know, shrink-wrapped in January at the supermarket where we go, oh, oh, my recipe calls for tomatoes, but I can't possibly, you know, get flavor out of that thing. Um, I think that... We we recognize the seasons when we really are willing to live with what's available from the garden or the field um, at, at the time that nature intended it for it to bloom. Um, so that's the seasonal aspect of it, and it's tricky because if we really believe that, then we probably, you or I, will never have tropicals in our bouquets ever because, uh, you know, unless we're cutting them out of our containers in the summer, you know, that's, that's just not a crop that would be in New Jersey, New York area, or in the Seattle area, maybe in Florida. But, um, you know, we just, I think that we, we recognize how the seasons reflect where we live. And, um, you know, we do that with our food, and now we're advocating that the flower world can be very similar. Well, but a lot of people do force bulbs. Um, I'm not against that, Ken. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> And uh, in the, in this part of New Jersey, as I, we were talking about that, uh, there are quite a few growers who have cool greenhouses. I guess that's a way mm-hmm. to save some energy. Mm-hmm. There, there's a grower near me that has a special giant uh, calla lily, and they won't let anyone have any of the the tubers. Oh, uh, my and they they grow to six feet tall. Can you imagine? So what are they doing? Are they just selling them as cuts? They or, sell them as cut flowers to the wow. mostly to New York City, but yeah. also locally too. Yeah, and they're Amazing. unbelievable. And they do anemones and things like that. And I I try to support them whenever I can. But but you're right. You know, you really I, want them to give you that tuber. So you can oh, I, I'm, I I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Three generations they can have their tuber. So well, it would be yeah, so you're, hard to you're grow. right though. There's there's these they call and what what um my friend Diane Sukavati, who's the flower farmer on the cover of the book. Um, would say is that season ex- seasonal extension, and that the farmers are seeking ways to get more, you know, because they want to be a, a self-sustaining, you know, family mm-hmm. farm. They want to make a living off their land. And so having hoop houses and growing bulb crops, you know, maybe a month earlier than if they were just out in the fields, or extending at the end of the season um, with. Well, the one thing that a lot of people are doing is growing succulents for cutting. Yeah, I saw that. And that's great to see in the book. And I think you inspired me to think more about growing things with berries and 
foliage and twigs and evergreens. And I can't believe we've come to the end of our time. But I've been speaking with Deborah Prinzing, who is a country famous uh, garden writer and lecturer and journalist, really journalist. And this book, The 50 Mile Bouquet, Seasonal, Local and Sustainable Flowers, was beautiful photographs by David Perry. I think you have to do a follow-up on the rest of the country, more I, East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you again so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, Ken. Take care. Deborah certainly gave me a lot to think about. Well, I do go to farmer's markets, but uh, when I go to the supermarket, where I usually don't even look at the cut flowers, maybe I'll maybe I'll ask, where are these cut flowers from? Where did they come from? And certainly if I go to a florist, you can usually tell. Uh, if the if the flowers look like they were grown in grandmother's garden and if they look like they might have come from a field nearby, that sounds great. And you could ask and say, where are these flowers from? And I'm not just being xenophobic. I, I think this is a good thing for everybody. And we all want to try to buy flowers that are organically grown, too, without pesticides. See you next week. Another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. 